did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials and Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they belong to school, you didn't do anything. While there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else. And yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future, didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the generation war is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Alfe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Last time, in part four, we examined Generation X, the generation of the end of history and the rise of neoliberalism, of the Iranian Revolution and its aftermath, and of the fall of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, it was a generation that, unlike the boomers that preceded it, did not have a strong generational consciousness. They lived in the boomer's shadow. In this final part, we turn to a generation that already rivals the boomers in the amount of ink spilt about it, millennials. And we conclude by looking at how the pandemic may shape the newest generation, Gen Z. Millennials grew up after the end of history, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of communism, and all major questions of politics and society seemingly settled. It would follow that millennials would see themselves as a generation without history, or even beyond history floating above and otherwise unconstrained by the processes and narratives that gave previous generations a sense of their place in the wider sweep of history. In this political void, are millennials able to understand themselves as a generation at all? If generational consciousness is driven by a sense of conflict with and distinction from the old, what are millennials against? Or does this generation simply take on the labels and descriptions that others put on it, a hyper-mediatized generation constructed by media narrative? In this historyless era though, there were still formative events that millennials experienced together as they came of age. 
9-11, the war on terror, and the invasion of Iraq that followed. With the global financial crisis of 2008 and its long-lasting consequences, perhaps the definitive event marking this generation, and indeed, perhaps splitting it in two. Our systematic effort to dismantle terrorist organizations must continue. But this war, like all wars, must end. That's what history advises. We're all familiar by now with the general caricatured picture of millennials and its common themes. Millennials are obsessed with social media, addicted to Instagram and Twitter, but leaving Facebook for the boomers and TikTok for the teens. Not really. Exactly in what area of technology mm -hmm. are you proficient? <laughs> Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter, you know, the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. <laughs> Millennials are economically feckless, splurging on avocados and expensive coffees at the expense of saving for mortgages. Mostly everything I'm seeing here is coffee and food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Outside of my bills, where most of my money goes, is food, drinks, and Ubers going out. Makes me feel like I'm throwing money away, but at the same time, I'm having fun, so... Millennials are both passionate about social justice and contemptuous of their boomer parents for having hoarded up all the property stock and resources of society, leaving millennials permanently hard up. Meanwhile, they read their Harry Potter books well past their childhoods, perhaps as a distraction from the deep misfortune they face, hit by both the global financial crisis and the pandemic disadvantage through no fault of their own, but perhaps lacking the resilience or just the old-fashioned grit to overcome these challenges. What have millennials done to merit so much froth about them as a generation? They're a big generation, unlike the neglected Gen X who preceded them. Millennials surpassed boomers to become the largest generation in the United States, with some 72 million members. But that doesn't tell us much. Find the discourse. Who actually are they? This is not an exact science, but uh, generally speaking, in the U.S., uh, we look at millennials as a cohort that's currently between age about 25 and the oldest of them just turned 40. Former Pew Research Director Paul Taylor. So this is a, this is a generation that is now well into adulthood. When, uh, when we uh, at the Pew Research Center, where I used to work and did a lot of generational studies when we first started looking at this group, uh, 10, 15 years ago, they were teenagers just coming into adulthood. We noticed back then how different they were, not just from older adults now, but from older adults when they were that age. And we have tracked them into early adulthood and now fully into, uh, into adulthood. And uh, they remain extraordinarily different from their elders uh, across a whole range of dynamics, uh, economic, uh, social, cultural, um, demographic. For Taylor, this distinctiveness is above all resumed in the shared economic challenges millennials have faced, at least in the U.S. It is fair to say uh, in the United States, and I think this is uh, true in, in other advanced economies, in the last several decades, uh, economic well-being has shifted north in the life cycle. Today's boomers, my generation, when you, when you do all the, the squaring up for inflation and all the rest. So it's an apples to apples comparison. Today's older adults are much better off in terms of income and wealth than yesterday's older adults. And today's younger adults are worse off than yesterday's younger adults. Another way of expressing this in the United States, upward mobility has been an article of faith. It's almost an American birthright. Generations always do better in terms of standard of living than the generation that comes before. 
there's one statistic that emphasis that that illustrates this. If you 50 years ago, if you looked at a 30 year old 50 years ago, he or she in 90% of the cases had a higher standard of living than his or her parents had at the same stage of life. Today's 30 year olds, today's millennials only have a 50% chance of having a better standard of living than their parents had at the same stage of life. So it's not that we're we're, we're entirely on a downward mobility uh, path, although about half the generation is. What it is true is it is no longer an assumption that things always go better. Now, why is this the case? Well, I'm not an economist. I don't want to over, overstate my uh, uh, credentials, but clearly something to do with the digital revolution, how profoundly that has changed the nature of work, the opportunities. You, when you get these kinds of enormous economic upheavals, we got it in the industrial era, uh, 100, 150 years ago, it's often the case that the, the, the well-off do better and the not well-off do worse. It, ex, it, it expands economic and wealth inequality. That has happened across the board in this country and in many economies. And at least in this phase of this transition, uh, it is better, it has been better for people already, um, already established, already deeper into the life cycle. One other shorter term impact if you think back to 10, 12 years ago now, the United States had a huge uh, recession driven by housing crisis, uh, economic collapse, et cetera. This happened at a time when a lot of today's millennials were just getting out of school, just entering the workforce, and it put them on their back feet. Uh, and it probably has put a, a lot of that cohort on its back feet for the ensuing decade, decade and a half. Whatever the role technological advances may have had in generating lower living standards, we might add to it, for example, the defeat of working class movements, which we explored in part four. There is no doubt that decline has been felt as a shift in generational distribution. Millennials have a reputation for loving all things wellness, but a new report says millennials are poised to be broker, sicker, and die younger than previous generations. So why all this doom and gloom when it comes to my generation? The question of declining living standards and their political consequences will be returned to in a bit. But let's start, in quite a millennial vein, with millennials' feelings, with affect, and with culture. Curiously, there are echoes of the 1960s in the ways we talk about millennials, particularly in a common idea of specialness. They have been described in many ways as being quite like the baby boomers. Jenny Bristow, a sociologist at Canterbury Christ Church University, and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, co-written with her teenage daughter. In the sense of having a sense of entitlement, of specialness, um, kind of coming of age, you know, during the 1990s, which I have to say, having lived through the 1990s, it, it wasn't, I didn't think it was like the 60s, but that's now it's how it's portrayed culturally, as though the 90s was like this kind of latte version of, of the 60s. Indeed, it's worth recalling a point made by Helen Andrews in the third part of this series on boomers. It was very obvious to me, not just because I was working on a book about baby boomers at the time, that the millennials and the Antifa activists on the street were trying to have their own 1968. And why not? We have been taught, the millennial generation, by our baby boomer history teachers that America was a terrible, horrible place until the 1960s, and that the 1960s were the summit of American politics. So it's natural that we should want to replicate that kind of politics, 
even on college campuses, you see so many students who think, you know, you haven't really had the college experience unless you've had a candlelight vigil on the campus quad for something. It doesn't really matter. For Jenny Bristow, though, this pandering to millennials has a political function and intent. I think the millennials were really flattered by people who had a kind of a political agenda to undermine certain aspects of society, social provision for older people. So the millennials were talked about as kind of having this real sense of generational grievance, blaming their parents for everything, that sense that they were coming of age in a time where they didn't have the opportunities that the baby boomers had, right? And this argument was often made on their behalf by people who wanted to find a rationale for uh, cutting uh, cutting pension schemes, uh, cutting funding to particular aspects of the welfare state, and who were basically trying to find a narrative for why uh, the economic situation at the end of the 20th century wasn't anything like as healthy as it was in the, <laughs> in the post-war boom. And so I'm very sort of suspicious of this idea that the millennials turned upon their parents. I don't think that that's what happened. I think it was a narrative that was put upon them um, in, in, in that respect. As much as there's a pandering to millennials, at the same time, critics chastise the generation for infantilism and for their unwillingness to grow up. You know, I think getting fucked up was uh, was a big thing for a lot of people, uh, myself and most people I know, for a long time. Journalist Clive Martin, who wrote extensively for that classically millennial publication, Vice, on clubbing and nights out, talking about the nature of millennial hedonism. And actually what we've ended up at is probably, and I think there was this belief that like, and I wrote a piece about it once. It's like, oh, when does the party stop? Are we ever going to, um, you know, grow up? Because we, you know, we haven't got the excuses that other generations have to stop partying. Um, they, we don't have houses, we don't have children, et cetera, et cetera. And this is when you probably wrote this in my life, it was like 27 or something like that. And there was a real feeling of that, that maybe, I think that film, The Great Beauty was interesting because it was about a 65 year old man, but it, it was a very much like the narrative seemed to chime with a lot of people I know, because it was like, when does the party stop? And uh, actually that kind of looks a little bit self-indulgent now because looking around me, most people I know are starting to, you know, click back into the society's norms, like quite suddenly. Some people who were quite mental two years ago suddenly got a kid and gone like really, really straight. And actually maybe everyone does just become their parents in the end. Actually for every person, like I said, who's kind of got fucked up a bit and went straight, I knew a lot of people who became casualties of that depressive hedonia. A lot of people who kind of sank into themselves with, you know, kind of downer drugs and, uh, you know, like downer music, didn't go out so much gaming kind of lost themselves in the internet and i know a lot of people who um didn't go for that hedonism per se but they um yeah this this slightly depressive shut-in side of things which I, i don't know how much of that really happened before does this depressive hedonia get parlayed into music so much of which seems to be about tonight and only tonight with a little sense of tomorrow it's basically saying the rest of the week's fucking shit, <laughs> you know, isn't it? It's saying tomorrow's going to be horrible. Today was horrible, but tonight there is a deep banality to that tune. But yeah, it does probably hint at a, uh, a mindset of sorts. 
Josh Glenn, who has attempted a micro-categorization of generations according to their cultural products on the site High Lowbrow, believes millennials to be kinder, more sincere, but also, and perhaps in contradistinction to Clive Martin's account, particularly career-focused. I found them to be quite an admirable generation, you know, as far as perhaps being more earnest than my generation was, you know what I mean? Like we were quite a cynical generation. I think it's kind of nice to swing back a little bit to kind of sincerity and earnestness. I feel like um, these guys are better parented than the previous generations were. So I feel like there's less less bullying. They're kinder. They're open to like transgender stuff and, um, you know, the idea of structural racism and, It's kind of, I mean, they're pushing this social conversation in an amazing way. Millennials think that they should have your job um, right away because they know how to use the internet better. So they would come to the newsroom, for example, that was, I was a journalist, so they would come into that world and immediately want all the top jobs because they saw all these older gray haired journalists fumbling to use these new tools and techniques. And so that was cause resentment on the part of the older folks. At the same time, there seems to be a pressure on millennials to understand themselves as a generation with the kind of self-mythologizing that that involves, a practice well taught to them by their boomer elders. Clive Martin again on his generation's self-conception. I think we grew up with a lot of um, these clip shows where people were talking about things uh, in documentary form about things that only not happened that not that long ago. So loads and loads of stuff about punk and about Acid House and about... Um, you know, various sort of TV moments and um, yeah, everything, the whole stretch of that. And those two generations, they were really given a lot of airtime in terms of talking about their own childhoods, their own experiences, the moments that meant a lot to them. And that became kind of like a, um, like a cultural textbook for a lot of people in this country. I think just, it became like, there became this version of British history, which was like, okay, it starts in the 1970s with their strikes and then um, punk comes along and then Thatcher comes in and there's a minor strike. And then there's football hooliganism and ecstasy saves all the football hooligans and acid house comes and there's the poll tax rights. It's like, um, it's a very, uh, it's an interesting history, but it's quite, a, it's quite a straight one, you know? And we, uh, yeah, we grew up with that mythology. Uh, and no, my generation has not been <laughs> uh, given any platform, even as the people older you know, the older millennials, people in their mid thirties, haven't really been given a voice to um, mythologize that so much. There is something very contemporary about this drive to view oneself through a self-dramatizing lens, amply aided by social media. I think that I may be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice of a generation. Actually, come to think of it, who would be the voice of the millennial generation if such a concept isn't too corny? The boomers had Albie Hoffman, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, Rudy Dutschker, and more, all associated with political movements. Is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the millennial voice? It's hard to think of any other millennial political leaders who would fit the bill. Maybe figures from culture, like uh, Lena Dunham or Sally Rooney, or one of the many voices from the Me Too movement. Maybe we should just leave this question here, though it's worth noting that most of the prominent candidates are women. That maybe tells us something about the social change that millennials embody. But also, the difficulty in coming up with a suitable candidate might tell us something about the fragmented media experience of today, or about the lack of political movement. (laughs) 
You've reached the end of this free sample of part 5 of OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. For access to the full episode, you'll have to subscribe at patreon.com slash We'd love to see you there.